So we return to chapter 18 of the 1689 Confession of Faith. We started into this chapter last week, and uh, uh, let me just remind you of where we are at uh, in this chapter on assurance, on the assurance of grace and salvation. In the first chapter, I'm sorry, the first paragraph, the confessors make a point. Their point is simple. For those whom God has elect to himself, he gives assurance of their salvation. He gives assurance of their salvation. I put it very simply like this last week. Why would God save a people, set aside a people, elect a people to himself, but not tell them that they were, in fact, his own? That makes no sense, does it? Now, God has purposed to bring about the assurance of those who belong to him. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace. God has not only decreed who he is saving, and how he will save them, but also decreeing that he assures them of their salvation. He draws them to himself. He doesn't just leave them dangling out there in the vain hope that something might happen. He actually has purposed to assure his people that he brings to faith by the Spirit of God in their state of grace. Thus, the statement of the assurance of grace and salvation that they're assured of the grace of God, they're assured of their salvation through the grace of God. So the confession writers here are making it very clear from the previous chapter, God is going to persevere a people. Based on his eternal decree, he is going to preserve a people as they persevere in faith, which leads to the logical next point, and he's going to assure them that they belong to him. Okay. Now you remember, I said last week, that is a indissoluble axiom. It cannot be withdrawn. Okay, It is a fact that God himself has made known in his word. So when we talk about assurance and we deal with the realities of life, we must always run back to that bedrock statement. It's just like the previous chapter. The bedrock statement is God's going to preserve his own. Okay, No ifs, ands, or buts. He's going to preserve his own. Yes, our experiences are going to make it look like that's not happening. But God is going to preserve his own. The flip side of that coin is God will bring assurance to those who belong to him. The confessors are making that clear. Okay, So we have to hold on to that bedrock reality that, that God is going to assure his own. Which leads to the second paragraph, which is that the certainty of this assurance is not some bare conjectural or probable persuasion. And what I describe that is, it's not just based on your emotions. Okay, It's not based on how you feel. Because there's going to be a lot of times you don't feel like you have assurance. It's not a feeling. It's not some emotional reality. And it's also not a volitional reality in the sense that you just can't will it into place. By just, you know, repeating a mantra or something to that effect. Okay, it's not based on some bare conjecture, but it's based on two immutable facts. Okay, what I call 
objective realities. Emotions are subjective. They change every minute of every day. But there's groundable facts upon which God has set our assurance. One, Christ has died and been raised from the dead. He walked out of a tomb after having been crucified dead, buried in the ground. He walked out of a tomb, and that is an objective truth upon which our assurance can be built. And the second, going along with it, is the inward evidences, the inward evidence of the graces of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a deposit in us by God's decree to bring about an inward testimony to us of our relationship with God. God hasn't just left us dangling in the wind hoping. Nope, he's given us two two objective realities. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the Spirit of God that comes into us. And this Spirit testifies through us. He testifies of our adoption. He witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of God and is a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. He, he tells us, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. That's what he's telling us. He's, he's the inward testimony to that reality. Again, why would God send the Spirit into the life of people to raise them from the dead and then show them nothing after that about himself. That makes no sense. It makes perfect sense that the Spirit of God would come and raise the elect from the dead, and as he raises them from the dead, his continuing presence in them becomes a testimony out of them, assuring them of their relationship with God. Assuring them of the solid connection they now have with their Heavenly Father. So, God is going to bring assurance into the life of his own. And secondly, he's going to do so not through subjective means, but through the objective realities that he himself has made known. Okay? All right, so when we ended last week, I basically put it before you like this. And I didn't mean to be flippant. I might have come off sounding like I was flippant, but I really was not intended to. When we start having questions about assurance, the natural question is, What part of those two things don't you believe? I put it like this. What's your problem? Okay, what's your problem with those two things? Because that's where we're going to run to. We're always going to run to this. How do I know I'm saved? Because God has raised his son from the dead and because he's given you the spirit within you to testify, okay? We don't run to the emotions because the emotions are going to fail us. We run to the objective realities that are given to us. And as I, as I pointed out even last week, we put our faith in the promises of a God who cannot lie nor change his mind. If he has said, this guarantees your entry into my presence, you can take it to the bank if you believe that. If you call upon the name of the Lord, okay, that's it. I have a promise. And Christ is the expression of that promise, isn't he? You think about it, Christ is the expression of that promise. God said, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how do I know that's true? Because he, Jesus, walked out of a tomb alive on a Sunday morning after he said he would be. Right? Right? 
That's, object, that's objective truth. That's objective fact. Now, at this point in the discussion, it is always inevitable and invariable that someone will say, well, what about the reality of living in this life? Okay, the confession writers are not afraid to go there. Even as we saw in the previous chapter, they were not afraid to go into the realities of the human experience. The axiom is true. God's going to preserve a people, but we don't always see it or feel it or believe it. Same is true here. When it comes to our assurance, sometimes we doubt it, which, by the way, is the opposite of assurance. Right? Doubt is the opposite of assurance, is it not? Okay. So, what about the reality of living in this life? Okay, so the confession writers want to clarify something in the next paragraph, because what you may have heard me say, and I did not, but what you may have heard me say is, well, when you come to faith, from that point on, you will have an absolutely unbroken line of assurance from the moment of your faith until the moment you die. Okay, I didn't say that. And nobody believes that's the experiential reality of assurance, right? None of us believe that. Okay? There is a reality here, and that's called living. Right? Okay. So, the writers want you to make sure that you understand something here. And this is rather bizarre from our perspective, but it is absolutely true. God does not give this assurance to us the moment that we are saved in a quantifiable fashion. You have to live it out for it to come to play in you. He doesn't just hand you a piece of paper with a notary stamp on it that says, this one is guaranteed access into heaven. Does he? I mean, outside of what... um, Schuler used to do at the Crystal Cathedral with his little, you know, pocket things. There's none of that from heaven, right? There's none of that. In fact, does anybody know where the Book of Life is so I can go look up and see if my name is written in it? Anybody know where that is by any chance? Well, I know where it is. It's in the presence of God, and none of us can get there to see it. So, in other words, we are not going to automatically receive, at the moment that we come to faith in Christ, a a infusion of assurance that's going to go with us for the rest of our lives. It is something the Spirit of God is going to work out in us. In fact, it's a parallel to the basic concept of faith itself. How much faith did you have at the moment you first received Christ? Well, just enough to get you over the hump, right? You believed something, but you weren't sure of all that you were believing in, right? You didn't know all the details of what it is you're believing in, right? You knew a little. But what has happened over time? Hopefully, the Spirit has grown that trust as you have come to understand more and more of the realities of what it means to trust. The same exact parallel occurs when it comes to the issue of assurance. We start off rather unassured. But as we go through life and the promises of God are found and the Spirit of God works in us, guess what we do? We become more and more confident in these things. In fact, the the confession writers don't 
uh, appeal to Hebrews 11, 1 to 3 as a proof text in this passage, which is unfortunate. They really should. <laughs> because in Hebrews 11, 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The implication is that faith is built on, I don't see it, but I believe it. I'm trusting in something someone has said is true, but I have not seen it myself. So I'm believing the word of the one who gave me his word that it was true. In this case, God. Verse 2, for by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Listen to verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, all of that is like, what? But simple. It goes like this. None of you were there to see it. Were you? None of us were there to see God create the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence. By implication, we couldn't possibly have been there because we're creatures of the very creation that he created. And yet we believe he did. And yet we trust that he did, right? Why? Because it is built on what God has made known to us. We have the privilege that all of the rest of the people listed starting in verse 4 don't have. And that's the point the writer in Hebrews 11 is making. We have the advantage of having now in front of us the full revelation of what God wishes to say to humanity. We have it all in front of us. And so we have the building blocks upon which to have a solid assurance of what is true. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But we have seen. We have seen. We have seen Christ. Now, none of us were there in Galilee watching Jesus, right? But we have seen him in the pages of Scripture. He's revealed to us. And we have the Spirit of God testifying out of us. Okay. In other words, here's the thing. Assurance, like faith, grows over time. God has purposed in his inscrutability to make our assurance not just something that is handed to you on a platter, but something that he develops in you over time. He develops faith in you over time. He develops assurance in you over time. He develops holiness in you over time. Okay. What's the only thing you have to add to the promises of God to make them come to pass? What's the only thing you have to add to the promises of God to make them come to pass? Time. 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 God uses time to bring about our assurance, our sanctification, our growth in faith. You see, this is what God has purposed to do. I mean, I know, I know. I'm like you. I, I, I'd like to go, hey, God, why didn't you just snatch me off to glory when you brought me to faith? Wouldn't that just been easier? 
You know, just give me the resurrected body instantly and let me be in your presence forever. Wouldn't that be a bit perfect? Wouldn't that even been better? And God says, oh, no, 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 my way's better. My way's better. Now, sometimes we don't see it. But we step back and realize that he is God, he is inscrutable, he's decided that this is what he's going to do. Okay, so this is what the confession writers are saying in paragraph three. This infallible assurance, okay, wait a second. An infallible assurance is one that accomplishes its goal. When we talk about an infallible scriptures, you know, the, the scriptures are inspired, inerrant, infallible, right? Inspired meaning they're the word of God. Inerrant meaning they're without error. Infallible meaning that they accomplish what God purposed for them to accomplish. It will accomplish its goal. That's infallible. In this case, this infallible assurance, meaning what God has purposed to do by virtue of his spirit testifying through us and by the death and resurrection of Christ, this infallible assurance doth not, doth not, so belong to the essence of faith. It doesn't come with our initial confession of faith. It's not handed to us as the trophy of faith. It doesn't come with the essence of faith. But that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. So that is a, now that is the classical um, examination of the reality of living, isn't it? When we first come to faith in Christ, we come, we have a, a mustard seed of faith, we believe, but we struggle with, you know, all kinds of doubts and insecurities and difficulties. Doesn't, God doesn't just hand us immediately a bucket full of assurance and say, here it is. No, he intends for us to have to live in this world. And just as troubles build faith, so also troubles build assurance. It is the same means to accomplish God's will. God has purpose for us to have to live in a world filled with troubles, difficulties, trials, tribulations, temptations, sin, and on and on it goes. Because he purposes to use it to accomplish something. And one of the things he will do is bring about our assurance through it. Now again, how many of you think that's counterintuitive? Right? Seems counterintuitive. Wait, 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 wait. Wouldn't it be easier for him just to give us assurance up front, just leave it at that? Why build it? Well, God has his ways, right? So, a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker, before he feels that sense of assurance in himself. Now, you'll notice I just used emotionalism to describe the process, which is anthropomorphic. I can't get around it. It's not an emotional thing, right? It comes with understanding. It comes with growing up in understanding and knowledge. So, it doesn't come with the essence of faith. We have to, we have to work it out. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, 
he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of means, attain thereunto. That's a mouthful, but it's actually a very simple sentence. The Spirit of God's intention and purpose in the life of the elect, after regeneration, after bringing them to faith, such that they are justified by faith, after bringing them to Christ through the effectual call, after he comes and he does these things to bring them to Christ, he will then, he will then bring about an increase in our assurance. And he will do so in very ordinary ways. This is not going to be an extraordinary task. The Spirit of God is not going to have to do something extraordinary to convince you. Now, I I know sometimes we'd wish he would, right? Okay, just show me the videotape of Jesus walking out of the tomb, and I'll be good. Right? No. The Spirit of God is not going to do that. The Spirit of God is not going to do that. The Spirit of God is is going to, 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 without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of means, I'll come back to that, attain thereunto. The Spirit of God is going to enable us to know the things which are freely given of God using the right means to attain assurance through the ordinary process of being a believer and following Christ. The ordinary means. Now, you'll notice it says it says that to, Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given unto him of God. To know the things. Okay, so our assurance, even as I pointed out last week, our assurance is built on knowing more and more and more of what is revealed in the Word. Okay? Our assurance is built on knowing more and more of what God has made known to us in his Word. There's no excuse for the Christian to remain infantile in their understanding of doctrine and theology. No excuse whatsoever. The Spirit of God intends to take this entire book and help you understand it. Now, yes, it's going to take a lifetime. And yes, you're still not going to understand everything that's in it by the time you die. The good news is we have an eternity to figure it out. But he's going to give to us a greater and greater understanding. We should desire that. Didn't I say that last week? Didn't I say we should desire to grow up in the knowledge of Scripture? I want to understand more and more of what is said here. Who is this Jesus? What does it mean that he walked out of a tomb? And how does that apply to me? What else does that imply? What else does that say? What else does that mean for me? that I can then look at and say, aha, that makes sense. I understand that, and I understand that, and I understand that. And guess what? That's the building up of faith, but it's also the building up of assurance. It's also building up that sense within us that we are, we have trusted in the right things. Again, there's no excuse for the massive doctrinal illiteracy that exists in Christendom today. There's absolutely no excuse for it. Because it's antithetical to the very gospel itself. The Spirit of God desires for you to know more and more of these things. Paul couldn't have said it clearer in Ephesians 4 when he said that the Lord has given to the church all these various roles, right? Apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists, shepherds. He's given all these. Why? 
just so they can get paid? So they have something to do? No, so that Christians mature in the faith, grow up in understanding. What does a teacher do? A teacher tells you, this is what this word is saying. This is what this word is saying. This is what this, and you learn. You go, oh, and you begin to connect the dots. Oh, I see, yes. Okay, okay, okay. So Jesus coming out of a tomb was a part of a promise given all the way back in Genesis. Oh, I see how that links together Israel. We learn more and more of these things. It produces greater faith in the promise and greater assurance that we belong to him. So he's going to give us this knowledge. We should be pursuing it, as I said last week. But without extraordinary revelation, okay, it's not going to take some magic thing, in the right use of means. Now, there's a word that should pop out at you as a reformed person. All right? M-E-A-N-S. That is one of those words that you really ought to have you know, as part of your breakfast each morning. The right use of means. Our God has purposed to use things in the created order to accomplish his divine intentions and purposes. He has purposed to use things in the created order to accomplish what he purposes. Greatest example. God has purposed that the means of a man coming to faith in Christ is the preaching of the word. And not just behind a pulpit. The testimony of the word of God into the life of someone else. He has, that's the means he should. He doesn't just walk up to sinners, you know, metaphorically, and tap them on the shoulder and say, Hi, I'm God, you belong to me now. No, he sends ordinary people like me and you out into the world with this word and it accomplishes salvation. That's a means, okay? We call it an ordinary means because it's not a spectacular, it's not a miraculous thing. Oh yeah, it looks like it when it's done, right? When the Spirit of God opens the heart of a man, that looks like a miracle, doesn't it? But we look back and go, all I did was say a few words and ta-da! The Spirit of God did a remarkable work. It looks miraculous, but it's ordinary. It's an ordinary means. So what the writers are saying is by the right use of means, we are to take advantage of the things God has given to us in this world to grow our assurance. You see? It doesn't grow just on its own. It requires means. You can't just set a seed on a tabletop and it produces something. What do you have to do to it? You have to put it in the ground. You have to water it. You have to fertilize it. You have to cultivate it. And it grows. The same thing is true with us. The seed's been planted, the seed of faith. It has to grow. Reason why, by the way, Jesus used often used seed analogies in relation to faith and word planting, right? Because it required actions to come. The ordinary means of planting a seed in the ground to produce a crop. We are to use the means that God has given to us. We are to use the things that have been given to us by the Spirit of God for the purpose of these things. Now, the writers don't tell us what the means are, but it doesn't take much effort to figure out what they are, right? What are some of the means that God has given to us to grow our assurance? His word? Prayer? Gathering with the saints and fellowship, 
The church? The Spirit of God? That one's sort of assumed over the, uh, over the rest, but that's, he's not really a means. He's the person that accomplishes through the means. He could be looked at as a means, I guess. But see, so it didn't take much effort to figure it out, right? They're all right in front of you. We know these things as believers. We know that the Spirit of God uses the Word. He uses fellowship with other believers. He uses preaching and teaching. He uses prayer. He uses ministry. He uses so many things, this ordinary things that He has given to us. And these things not only grow our faith, but they help us become more assured over time. Go to a church where the preacher helps you be more assured of your trust in Christ. And he does it by actually teaching you something from the Word. Don't go to a a pastor who says, well, you don't need to learn doctrine, but trust me, you're good. I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw it if he says that, right? Right? How many preachers of our day are saying that? Is that not what they're communicating from their pulpits? Are they not saying, uh, look, it isn't important if you know this Bible. That's not important. Let's just talk about how you feel. As though feelings are somehow going to assure you. That's the problem. They don't. Which is why you have to go back next week and get another dosage of feelings. The scriptures are written so that the Spirit of God can take them and bring them into our lives And they grow our assurance that we belong to Christ. We learn more of these things. And we should desire more of these things. So, so, enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of means, attain thereunto. Attain unto assurance. And therefore, therefore, meaning, okay, here's, here's how we ought to be thinking about this. And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. Heard that verse, right? Make your calling and election sure. Does that mean that what we're being asked to do by the apostle when he says that, that we're supposed to go out and thumb through the book of life to see if our election is sure? What is it saying? not saying that. It's saying, use these things that God has given to you and you will more and more day by day discover that you are a part of the elect. Because you will come to understand by the work of the Spirit what the reprobate man can never understand. Can never understand. He will try, but he cannot. The truly born-again man will begin to understand these things, and these things will convince him more and more that he is, in fact, called and is elect. That thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, remember those, those two words? Those are not emotions, okay? Make it clear, joy is not an emotion, contrary to popular belief. And peace is certainly not an emotion, although it can be substituted, right? I mean, there's many who can, who can claim peace and joy when they have no peace or joy. 
No, the Spirit of God gives to us these two things as a part of our assurance. Our assurance is a set of peace and joy that comes into us. A peace, first of all, which is, as I've said many times, different from a succession of hostilities. Okay? Peace is a genuine change of relationship. To have peace with God, you have a real change of relationship with God. He no longer looks at you as a foreigner, a stranger, or, or, or a reprobate, a rebel, an enemy. He doesn't look at you like that anymore. Therefore, he has no reason to be at enmity with you, at wrath. You're no longer under his wrath. Why? Because the relationship has changed. He now looks at us as sons and daughters rather than as enemies in rebellion against him. And so we have peace. So our life is filled with that peace. Even as Paul says in Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let it rule in your heart as we think about this great salvation that we have. Assurance is about having that kind of peace with God. You come to understand it more and more and more. And you begin to realize, yes, I'm not under God's wrath anymore. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. I see it. I understand it. I'm beginning to realize it as the Spirit works through these ordinary means. And then the second is joy. And as we pointed out in the book of James, joy is not some sort of happiness. Joy is a sense of contentment in him. Even when our circumstances are abysmal. Even when life is terrible, we have a sense of contentment in him. A joy which comes out of us. A sense of, it doesn't matter what's happening to me. What matters is his love his affections on me. See, that's the very essence of assurance, isn't it? Peace and joy. And so the Spirit of God is bringing these out in us. That thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God. Okay, love of God and thankfulness to God in the sense of, okay, not only do I understand what it is that God has done, but I'm bursting with thankfulness for having received it. I don't know about you, but what's true about me is the more and more I learn of what God has done for us in Christ, the more grateful I am. It's not less. It's more. Every day, it's more. Wow, you would do that for me? For me? There's a gratitude and a thankfulness that flows out of the heart of the regenerate man. And there's a love for God that flows out of the regenerate man towards this one who has saved them. Jake is probably out in the front. Uh, she's not in here. Sorry. So the bottom line is, is these are, again, not emotions, right? Love's not an emotion. How many times have I said that? Okay, we're coming on a thousand now. Because love is not an emotion. Love is a commitment. I'm committed to you, O oh God. I'm committed to walk in your ways. I'm committed to follow you. I'm committed to believe you when you say, I belong to you. Right? That's assurance in this context. So our heart may be enlarged in peace and joy, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. In strength and cheerfulness in the duty of obedience. Well, Not only are we assured that we have a relationship with God by virtue of peace, and not only do we see ourselves grateful to God for what he has done, but we are also 
ready and willing to serve him, to be obedient to him. All of these things are tied up together, by the way. You'll notice that there's really, it's really hard to disentangle the ideas of sanctification, faith, and assurance. They all pretty much are run hand in hand because you really can't have one without the other. So if you're going to have faith, it's going to lead to assurance, which is going to lead to sanctification. They're all really the same thing, in a sense. We separate them out as humans because we need to. But we're going to have strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, which are, all of which are, the proper fruits of this assurance. We will find ourselves filled more and more with peace and joy, with love and thankfulness to God, and with the cheerfulness of doing what it is that God has told us to do. We should see that increasing in ourselves. That is our assurance. That's our assurance. And then one final sentence. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. Now, once again, you have to go get the dictionary from the 17th century to figure out what the word looseness is referring to here, right? Okay, we can't take it out of the, out of the current context. We would take it out of the current context as looseness being, you know, those kind of women, right? Okay, they are loose, all right? That's not what it's referring to. I'm sure it includes some of that, but that's not its primary point. The looseness here is probably a reference to the idea of us just deciding I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to settle on the fact that I made some sort of profession and that's the end of it. My assurance is based just on I did something once. Okay, So here we are in the midst of a Christendom that that's basically how it thinks. I would argue that the vast majority of Christendom is defined by looseness. No connection between, no solid connection, right, between what the Spirit has wrought in us and what the Spirit is accomplishing in us. The, the, the proof text that's used here, by the way, is Romans 6, which is a perfectly good place to go for this exact point. All right, so we've been saved by grace, right? We've trusted in the promise of God. We've been saved by grace. So I guess that means we can go live any way that we want to. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Another way of writing that would be, are we to go on sinning so that we may get more and more forgiveness from God? The inter- Paul is assuming his interlocutor at this point would ask such a foolish question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul says, look, there's been an ontological change. I got that word in, see? See how I got it in there? There's been an ontological change. You are not what you were because you died. Death changes what you are, doesn't it? Death very much changes what you are, right? Okay, but in a metaphorical sense, death has the same idea. When we have died to something, metaphorically speaking, it means that we're no longer what we were. We're something else. So really, Paul's answer is, what's the matter with you? How can you even think like that? Because Christians don't think like that. So in other words... The work of the Spirit of God to bring us to assurance through 
the ordinary means that he has given us and the work that he does, not extraordinary revelations, just ordinary revelations that he has given us, enlarges us in peace and joy and love and thankfulness and strength and cheerfulness, and that is very, very far from looseness. It's the opposite of looseness. Looseness is, it doesn't matter whether what I do in life. It doesn't matter at all. That's looseness. Typical Christian in our day. It doesn't matter what I do in this life. I prayed the prayer, I'm going to heaven when I die. No. Spirit says, no, 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 you don't understand. Those who have been elect by God have been not only elect to be saved, but they have elect to have an assurance that they are saved. And one of the hallmarks of that is they don't want to be loose. That's the point that Paul's making here. They don't want to be just the kind of person that says, well, it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, you know, I've been saved by grace. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. No, that's the opposite of that. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. This, uh, this work of the Spirit doesn't lead us into this place of complacency. Quite the opposite. It leads us into a place of discipline. It leads us into a place where He does a work in us and we feel, quote-unquote, that assurance. You see? It's a work of God to bring about our assurance. Which leads to paragraph 4. Again, something that has to be said here, because I know you say, Oof, man, it would be great if that were a straight line, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great if that were just like a straight line from the moment I'm saved to the moment I'm glorified, just a straight line of upward assurance? But we all know that's not the case, right? We all know that reality sets in, okay? And the reality goes a second way here from the previous paragraph, and that is that true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse, mean many ways shaken, diminished, and intermittent. Shaken, okay, sometimes hmm, we doubt. Uh, sometimes diminished, sometimes we're like, hmm, well, maybe. And sometimes intermittent, meaning something literally steps in between us and breaks off that assurance for a brief time. By the way, what is the most likely thing that's going to break your assurance? What is going to intermit? What's the most likely thing that will intermit your assurance? Sin. Sin. Your sin. And what's the first thing you think of after you've done the same thing a a thousandth time? Oh, gee, maybe I'm not saved after all. Right? Okay? All right, so... Again, these men are not afraid to deal with the realities on the ground. Okay, so we're going to find our our assurance many ways, shaken, diminished, and intermittent. As by negligence in preserving of it, okay, negligence, meaning we fail to do what we need to do, we fail to take advantage of the means of grace, right? We sleep in on Sunday rather than showing up. And the preacher spent the whole week writing a sermon just for you, and you didn't hear it. By falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit. See it? Sometimes it's shaken. By falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience, grieveth the spirit. By some sudden or vehement temptation, not necessarily a sin, but some great temptation that comes against you in which you ask, well, would the man of God really be tempted like that? 
right? I didn't sin, but would the man of God really be tempted by that? Yeah, Jesus was. By some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, meaning that we feel distant from him for whatever reason. Something comes along in life, something something interrupts the regular travels of life, and suddenly it seems like God is at a distance. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like God is far off? You ever feel like God is not close at hand? And suffering even such as to fear him, to walk in darkness and to have no light. Suffering even such, meaning he, he grants even some to walk, to fear him, to walk in darkness, meaning they walk away from him out of fear of him. They're afraid of what he has said to be true. Ever had a situation where you've encountered something in the word of God that says you ought to do something and your reaction is, I don't want to talk about it. Same idea. Okay, so there's a number of ways in which at times in our lives we're going to find our assurance shaken. Sometimes it's going to be by sin. Sometimes it's going to be by a great temptation that comes against us. Sometimes it's going to be circumstances that seem that though God is distant from us. And even sometimes when we just don't want to talk to God today. I just, I don't want to. I'm mad or I'm whatever. Yet, okay, that word yet, by the way, is the best word in all four of these paragraphs. Yet, are they never destitute of the seed of God and the life of faith? They're never destitute of the seed of God. That seed of God cannot be removed. The planting that God has put in us, the faith that he has put in us by his spirit, even the spirit himself cannot be withdrawn, will not be withdrawn. And the life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. In other words, you may not sense it today, but you may tomorrow. How? By the ordinary means that God has given us. Sometimes the best thing for us to do in the midst of whatever it is that shakes our assurance, is simply to open this book and read. And as we do, the word of God by the Spirit of God becomes for us new again, and we see once again the promises of God, and we go, okay, okay, yep, yep, it hasn't changed, nothing's changed, it's good. They are never destitute of the seed of God and the life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. And by the which, meaning all these things above, by the which, in the meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. Or, repeating the entirety of the previous chapter in one simple phrase, God will preserve his own. He will not allow to fall them to fall into utter despair where they no longer believe even that they belong. The definition of utter despair, by the way, is apostasy. He will not allow them to fall into apostasy. We have an assurance from God 
by the power of his spirit, through the ordinary revelation of scripture and the ordinary means that God has given to us, that he will grow our assurance in him. Yes, yes, there will be times when it doesn't feel like we belong. There will be times when our emotions will fail us. Oh, I just don't feel like I belong to God this week. Run back to that which has been given to us by God. Seek his face and he will not allow us to fall into utter despair because the axiom still holds. He will preserve his own and he will give them assurance. Those axioms cannot be broken. Okay, so chapter, paragraphs 3 and 4, which talk about, well, what about, must be built on the foundations of paragraphs 1 and 2, which is, God has spoken. He will assure his people. He will bring them to himself. He will do this. He will give them the light of his countenance. He will fill them with these things. Not instantly, not automatically, not consistently, necessarily, because we live in a fallen world, but he will bring his own. And he will give them assurance in doing so. Bottom line is these two chapters should be two chapters that you stick your nose in regularly. The confession wants you to know God has a people he's holding fast to himself, and he wants you to know it. He wants you to know it. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. We don't have to wonder whether God loves us. We don't have to wonder whether or not we've done enough or said enough or whatever. We just have to know that God is good. He does what he says he's going to do. He cannot lie. He cannot change his mind. And if he says, this is what I have promised, trust me in my promise. And you will have assurance. 